I should start by uh, telling you that I have had the most uh, wonderful preparation for stepping up here to make this address uh, this afternoon. Uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so, I've had the privilege, because that is the correct uh, way of describing it, of sitting at the library table of Sir Walter Scott, uh, just outside the principal's office. So I, I'm feeling duly inspired uh, for the uh, session that lies ahead of us. Um, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to be here today at the Edinburgh Centre for Constitutional Law to discuss the constitutional future of an independent Scotland. I have to say it's a particular pleasure for me to be here at the Edinburgh School of Law where my late colleague, Professor Sir Neil McCormick, was such a distinguished Regis Professor for 36 years. Neil was, of course, an inspiration and a guide to many of us in the SNP, as well as being a preeminent figure in the study of law. He also applied his acute analytical mind to the concept of nationalism in our modern world. He famously drew the distinction between existential and utilitarian nationalists, or those who support independence for its own sake, as it were, and those who support independence as the best way of achieving the kind of society we want. This being Scotland, of course, both strands of nationalisms coexist quite comfortably within the country, the Yes campaign, the SNP, and indeed probably within most individual nationalists. But if we look at the content of the current debate on independence, we will see that it is very much about the opportunities that independence will bring Scotland, opportunities for economic growth, for a fairer society, and indeed for Scotland's place in the world. So the terms of the debate are very much those of the utilitarian nationalist. Uh, I'll return to this theme a little bit later in my speech, but I think it's no exaggeration to say that one of Sir Neil's great legacies is to have shaped the terms in which our historic national debate is now being conducted. Uh, Neil's other great legacy is as one of the most distinguished constitutional lawyers Scotland has ever produced. He was one of the architects of previous models for Scotland's written constitution, and his contribution to the SNP's constitutional proposals simply can't be overstated. So it is an immense source of pride to me to be able to publish for consultation today and to discuss here in the university where Neil McCormick spent so much of his distinguished career, the Scottish Government's proposals for the interim constitution that will require to be in place for day one of independence, and even more importantly, our proposals for the process to produce the permanent written constitution that we propose will follow and that will help to shape our newly independent country. Before I get to the detail of our proposals, I want to start by distinguishing the two forms of constitutional debate that we're currently having in Scotland as we consider the future of this nation. And to elaborate a little bit on my reference to Neil's utilitarian nationalism as an inspiration for both. Uh, the first, of course, is the overall debate. Should Scotland be an independent country? This is a debate on Scotland's constitutional future in the broadest sense and undoubtedly in the most important sense. 
The second is a debate about the constitution of an independent Scotland in the terms that we as lawyers uh, might understand it and as this centre might study it. Uh, that, of course, is the description of where powers and duties lie in the state and the rights of its citizens and the underpinning texts and statutes, the foundations of the state, in other words. It's crucial to say from the outset that these two aspects of the debate are intimately and inextricably linked. We in the Scottish Government are clear that the Constitution, with a capital C as it were, is fundamental to and not different from the range of issues with which governments deal day in and day out. As we said in Scotland's Future, uh, on page 351, if uh, any of you lawyers want to check the precise reference, uh, the constitution of a country defines who makes decisions on behalf of its people and how the people choose those decision makers and influence their decisions. A constitution is the basis of everyday life, not separate from it. And that's why we made our proposals for a written constitution and a constitutional convention the subject of the very first paper the Scottish Government published in this phase of the debate back in February 2013. But I also believe that the opportunities provided by a written constitution, the opportunities to determine the kind of country and the kind of society we want to be, are in themselves an important part of the argument for independence. Which is why I will deal firstly with the wider constitutional debate. The central debate we are having in Scotland right now is a very engaging one, a very exciting one, uh, but it, at its heart it is also a very practical debate, a utilitarian debate to use Sir Neil McCormick's language. It is about the economy, it's about jobs, it's about welfare, it's about our natural resources, the provision of childcare, membership of the European Union, and whether with independence Scotland would be better off or not. We in the Scottish Government make the case for independence of Scotland's constitutional future because we believe that it will lead to Scotland becoming a better country. First, we believe it will make Scotland more democratic. We will always have the governments we collectively vote for. For about half the time since the Second World War, voters in Scotland have not supported the party that has formed the government at Westminster. We have a Westminster government today that is led by a party that has in the last four UK general elections won in order, none, one, one and one parliamentary seat in Scotland. Yet this government still makes crucial decisions for Scotland on the economy, on welfare, on replacing Trident on the Clyde and in representing Scottish interests in Europe and the wider world. Uh, and trust me, this isn't some dry constitutional point, although I appreciate that many in this audience might prefer discussion of the dry constitutional points. Uh, but to return to my initial point, this has real practical everyday consequences for people in Scotland. And the majority of Scottish MPs voted against the bedroom tax. They voted against the privatisation of the Royal Mail. They voted against changes to child benefit and public service pensions. But in spite of that, all of these things will all still happen in Scotland. At the same time, we have a Scottish Parliament. That very fact recognises Scotland as a distinct political national community. Our Parliament is elected by a proportional system so that it fairly represents the views of the people across Scotland. 
The Scottish Government has to win the confidence of that Parliament and thus the people of Scotland in order to govern. And again, this has direct practical consequences. In Scotland, we have rejected privatisation of the National Health Service, introduced free personal care for our older people, restored universal access to eye tests and prescriptions, and crucially, to higher education. We've also led the way with the smoking ban and climate change legislation, and we've taken measures to address alcohol consumption. In short, the Scottish Parliament, uh, while of course not everyone will agree with everything it has done or will do in the future, nevertheless has followed policies and priorities for Scotland uh, that generally speaking have the support of the people of Scotland. And the long-term developments in voting patterns in Scotland, their divergence from the rest of the UK and the truly democratic alternative of Scotland's national parliament have, in my view, rendered the Westminster system unsustainable from a Scottish perspective. It's simply not credible, in my view, for Westminster governments with little or no representation in Scotland to seek to impose policies on this country, a country with its own parliament and its own government, uh, no matter what Schedule 5 to the Scotland Act might say about reserved and devolved powers. In short, our governance arrangements should reflect the underlying political realities of our country, not seek to override them. Uh, independence for Scotland is the only solution that can eliminate this democratic deficit and remove these fundamental instabilities from the heart of the current political system. Only independence completing the powers of the Scottish Parliament can secure for Scotland the government and the policy choices in reserved areas that command the support of people across our country. The second and third main practical arguments for independence as Scotland's constitutional future are that we can create a more prosperous Scotland and a fairer Scotland. I'll make only three points to demonstrate the constitutional arguments at the very heart of these very practical aspects of our national debate. Firstly, Scotland can more than afford to be an independent country. The Financial Times, Standard & Poor's, the IFS, even the current Prime Minister all accept that. Uh, even the Treasury can't quite bring themselves to say we can't, although they do imply it on an almost daily basis. I've had to remove a joke about Lego here under instruction from the manufacturers. Um, in terms of GDP per head, we in Scotland are wealthier than Japan, the UK and France. We have more top universities, including this one, per head than any other country in the world. We've paid more tax per head than the UK as a whole for each and every one of the past 33 years. The key constitutional and practical point here is that with independence, the Scottish Parliament can deliver an economic policy tailored to Scotland's needs and retain the proceeds of growth in our economy in the form of increased tax revenues, a virtuous cycle. Uh, we would also, of course, take responsibility for creating that growth, but that would surely incentivise us, us to do better. By contrast, under the current constitutional arrangements, taxation largely passes to the UK Treasury, which then gives us a grant. The direct rewards for Scottish governments when we invest money on growing the economy are limited. Changing the constitutional arrangements will have direct practical benefits for Scotland in an economic sense. 
My second point is also on the economy. Ironically, as with so much of this debate, the arguments of those who oppose independence, in fact, serve to demonstrate why Scotland should become independent. Uh, the Treasury and others identified challenges that we would face in the years ahead. Demographics, a legacy of debt, and pressures on public finances. But by pointing to these challenges, which are, after all, products of the status quo, opponents of independence simply demonstrate that remaining in the UK and doing nothing to address them would be the wrong approach to take. Those opposing independence put forward no alternative plan to increase employment, grow the Scottish economy and grow our working age population. Their solution to the challenges we face is to leave it to Westminster and hope for the best. By contrast, the practical benefit of independence is that Scotland will be a national economy with all the tools that other independent states take for granted. We will no longer be a region of the unbalanced and unequal UK economy waiting for things to be done for and to us. Independence as our constitutional future puts the practical responsibility into our own hands. And my third point relates to building a fairer Scotland. Our expert working group on welfare recently published its second report, making a number of short and medium term proposals for a welfare system in an independent Scotland. They identified principles, fair, personal, simple, that should inform the development of a Scottish welfare system. And they made the crucial point that instead of the complex patchwork of welfare systems we will inherit, an independent Scotland could build a new system that meets the needs of a country of five million people. Now, I agreed with many of the group's specific recommendations. Others require some further consideration. But the important point this work demonstrates from a constitutional and a practical point of view is how independence will bring exciting opportunities to debate and to decide within Scotland how to address long-standing issues in new and quite innovative ways. In a nation of five million people, we can pursue reform with an agility and ambition that the sheer scale of the UK welfare system makes it almost impossible to deliver. The current travails of the universal credit reforms are a testament to how difficult it can be to reform the UK system. Uh, we might not always agree, agree about the right solution, but one thing we should all agree on is that it is right for us in Scotland to make decisions to address Scottish priorities. What is unthinkable, uh, in my view, is that at the end of this engaged and exciting process, we decide not to bother and simply leave responsibility for these issues in Scotland to George Osborne and Ian Duncan Smith. So that is the main debate on Scotland's constitutional future that is taking place at the moment, an intensely practical debate, a debate about the future, a debate about how we can change our country for the better. But providing its foundation is a debate on our future constitution, again with a capital C. As I noted earlier, the very first paper the Scottish Government published in this phase of the debate was on the opportunities that a written constitution and the process for developing it would offer an independent Scotland. As I said then, an independent Scotland can put in place a modern written constitution that embodies the values of the nation, secures the rights of citizens, provides a clear distinction between the state and the government of the day, and guarantees a relationship of respect and trust between the institutions of the nation and its people. 
As importantly, the process of creating a written constitution in Scotland should be energising, as well as political parties and civic society. That process should ensure that the sovereign people of Scotland are centrally involved in designing and determining a written constitution as the blueprint for our country's future. Uh, that paper and the white paper, Scotland's Future, also described the legislative and constitutional steps we would take from the referendum uh, to independence to ensure that Scotland was a fully functioning independent country from day one. Today we make real the plans that we announced last year. Our draft Scottish independence bill and its accompanying consultation paper set out our proposals for the steps that will follow a yes vote in the referendum to provide Scotland with a robust platform to make the transition to independence. The bill also sets out the framework for the constitutional convention that would follow independence and will develop Scotland's permanent written constitution. Uh, we believe that Scotland should have a written constitution rather than the quilt work of statutes, precedent, practice and tradition that make up the constitution unwritten of the United Kingdom. A written constitution provides certainty and security for the citizens of any state. It defines and constrains at the organs of the state. It describes where powers lie and how those who wield powers are chosen and scrutinized. As is well known, that is not always clear in the UK. It also sets out the aspirations of the people of the country and the opportunity to come together and set these out is why I believe that the prospect of a constitutional convention and a written constitution are in themselves positive reasons for voting yes. I know this audience will want to study the bill and the accompanying paper carefully, no doubt in uh, some minute detail. Uh, so I won't spoil your enjoyment of that process by describing it now in too much detail. But I do want to describe some of its main features and the process that will follow a yes vote in September. The long title provides that the bill will be an act of the Scottish Parliament having three key purposes. To provide for Scotland to become an independent state, to provide an interim constitution for Scotland from Independence Day, and to provide for the establishment of a constitutional convention to draw up a written constitution for an independent Scotland. Uh, the first of these is dealt with very simply in section one. Uh, section one says on Independence Day, Scotland becomes an independent state under the constitution set out in part two of this act. Uh, I might say I like that, but I think Donald Dewar uh, beat me to uh, that line some years ago. At uh, the bulk of the bill, sections two to 33, sets out the interim constitutional arrangements for an independent Scotland before the permanent constitution comes into force. This covers the head of state, the legislature, the government judiciary, and the other matters that you might expect to see. Importantly, it sets out that human rights will be incorporated into the first written constitution of an independent Scotland. Uh, I would highlight three particular provisions. Section two says, in Scotland, the people are sovereign. Uh, I quite like that too, uh, because that is the fundamental principle underpinning the bill. In Scotland, the people are sovereign. And that core truth resonates throughout Scotland's history and will be the foundation stone for Scotland as an independent country. Indeed, it was Neil McCormick's father who, together with Ian Hamilton, brought the case in which Lord Cooper said that parliamentary sovereignty was a distinctively English legal principle with no counterpart in Scots law. 
Uh, McCormick and Hamilton might have lost that famous case about the numbering of monarchs, but they did win an endorsement of that important legal principle. Uh, and that principle of the sovereignty of the people is also key to the argument for independence. The people who have the biggest stake in a successful Scotland are those of us who live and work here. Uh, there are better outcomes for Scotland when decisions about Scotland are made here by the people uh, of Scotland. Sovereignty means the people of Scotland always getting the government we vote for to govern our country in the way that we choose. In line with that principle, our approach to the period of transition is that powers necessary for Scotland to prepare to become independent are transferred from Westminster to Scotland shortly after a yes vote using the Section 30 procedure under the Scotland Act or a Westminster Act of Parliament. Uh, and the Scottish Independence Bill that emerges from this consultation process starting today will then be considered by the Scottish Parliament in the usual way. Uh, as well as recognising the sovereignty of the people of Scotland, this approach follows the precedent of the Edinburgh Agreement and the legislation for the referendum itself. Westminster too will need to take legislative steps to implement a yes vote, but the leading role in preparing for independence must be for the Scottish Parliament. In short, independence must be and will be made in Scotland. An independent Scotland uh, would, uh, I have no doubt, be a good global citizen. Uh, so in this respect, another important proposed provision in the bill is section 23 on nuclear disarmament. Uh, this provision would place a binding duty on the Scottish Government to negotiate towards the safe, speedy removal of Trident from our shores. The provision also provides a platform for Scotland to sign up to the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons treaty and to do our bit to advance nuclear disarmament across our world. Let me now move to section 33 of the draft bill, which provides for the preparation of the permanent constitution. Uh, under section 33, the first independent Scottish Parliament elected in May 2016 must by primary legislation establish a constitutional convention to draw up a permanent written constitution for agreement by or on behalf of the people of Scotland. Uh, the Scottish Government set out in the white paper some of the proposals that it would make to that convention for the permanent constitution. Uh, as well as key equality and human rights principles, including the requirements of the ECHR, these would include equality of opportunity and entitlement to live free of discrimination and prejudice, entitlement to education, a home to public services, and a standard of living that secures dignity and self-respect protection of the environment and the sustainable use of our natural resources, a ban on nuclear weapons being based in Scotland and controls on the use of military force, protection for the status of local government and the position of island communities, uh, rights in relation to healthcare, welfare, pensions and children's rights. Now, some of these are provided for in the interim constitution so that Scotland can start life as an independent country with protections for key aspects of our society. Uh, the process to develop the written constitution can then decide how to replace or build on these provisions for the longer term. These and other possibilities are described further in chapter five of our consultation paper. But it is important to stress that the Scottish government's voice will only be one of many in this process. Indeed, section 33 specifically ensures that the constitutional convention would be free from the direction or control of the Scottish government and the Scottish Parliament. It will be an independent convention of citizens and civic society. 
and the process of creating the constitution, the engagement by the people in it will be as important in many ways as its contents. Because the constitution of a country defines who makes decisions on behalf of its people and how the people choose those decision makers and influence their decisions. The constitution should also set out the aspirations we have for our country and our vision for the future. As I said earlier, a constitution is the basis of everyday life, not separate from it. So the written constitution should be designed by the people of Scotland for the people of Scotland. That process must be participative and collaborative to reflect that the people, not politicians or state institutions, are the sovereign authority in our country. I want to make two final points about the bill and the constitutional convention. Uh, the first is that it is important that the 2016 Parliament has a leading role in establishing the convention. That will be the first independent Scottish Parliament which the sovereign people of Scotland will ever have had the opportunity to democratically elect and it will have a clear mandate from the people to establish the convention. And the second is that this is a draft bill for consultation. It will only uh, be introduced uh, to the Scottish Parliament in the event of a yes vote in September. Uh, but the consultation period runs until the 20th of October. That is well after the referendum. So I encourage you all to study the proposals. I hope that many of you will contribute your views to the government. And of course, uh, I very much hope that we will then have the opportunity to put them into the real bill when it's introduced after a yes vote. I want to end my remarks today by considering one further aspect of Scotland's transition to independence, which is closely tied to the transitional process I described earlier. Uh, that is the approach of the Scottish Government and the Westminster Government to the negotiations that would follow a yes vote. There's been a lot of uh, rather lurid and frankly fanciful speculation about what would happen in this period. Uh, speculation that the negotiations would be acrimonious and bitter, that the political parties in the rest of the UK would stand on a platform of hammering the Scots in the 2015 general election. Uh, and metaphors about divorce uh, in doubtful taste, I think, uh, abound. But despite all of this campaign rhetoric, for that is what it is, uh, we can, I believe, confidently expect the negotiations following a yes vote to be timely and constructive, leading to two friendly and viable states from Scotland's independence. Indeed, I think just a moment's thought tells us that, that this is in the interests of everybody concerned. Before I expand my reasoning on this, let me make a connection to the written constitution that I've been discussing so far. Uh, we all know, and tragically the world all too often shows us this, that it doesn't matter how well-intentioned or finely worded a constitution is. A constitutional document in itself cannot create a democracy or secure the rule of law or the rights of minorities. What is important is the behaviour of the actors in the system. That is, that the document embodies and reflects the values and ambitions, perhaps even the consciences of the people of a nation. That those in government, politicians, the police, the judiciary, the legal profession, the media, all the people that make up society respect the values of the Constitution uh, and internalise them and act according to them. And here in Scotland and in the UK, we have the good fortune, the tremendous good fortune, to live in a society that does indeed respect democracy. 
uh, one that values the rule of law. Uh, and of course, right now, we are in the midst of a peaceful constitutional debate about independence. Other parts of the world are not so fortunate. And just as the finest written constitution cannot, sadly, by itself impose democracy and the rule of law, neither can some loose words in a hard-fought campaign undermine the democratic traditions that we have in this country. In the event of a yes vote, the people of Scotland will have spoken and the negotiations that follow will take place against that central truth. Just as the negotiations for the Edinburgh Agreement were a recognition of the democratic mandate created by the 2011 Scottish Parliament elections. The Westminster government then was quick to recognise that and to recognise the duty that they had, morally perhaps, but also to be true to their democratic tradition to facilitate that referendum. And the Prime Minister and the Westminster government and indeed the Houses of Parliament deserve full credit in appreciating that duty and in acting on it in a constructive and cooperative way. And it's that evidence that gives me confidence in the process that will follow a yes vote. In those negotiations and in that Edinburgh agreement, both governments also looked beyond the referendum and agreed, and I quote, that the two governments are committed to continue to work together constructively in the light of the outcome, whatever it is, in the best interests of the people of Scotland and of the rest of the United Kingdom. We in the Scottish Government have been thinking about and preparing for these negotiations with the Westminster Government and indeed with others. We've done in-depth analysis and published reasonable proposals that we believe are in the interests of all the parties involved. For example, on the currency, the Fiscal Commission Working Group, complete with two Nobel laureates, examined the options and recommended a sterling zone in the interests of both Scotland and the rest of the UK. We are confident that analysis will win the day and a currency union will be negotiated after independence, whatever UK ministers say in the heat of the debate, partly because it's already been said privately. Indeed, just a couple of days ago, uh, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davidson, publicly indicated that she might also favour a currency union in the event of a yes vote. But mainly, we take that view because it represents common sense. Similarly, we've made reasonable proposals to build on existing arrangements for a GB energy market, a common research area, and to share some services for a transitional period. We've outlined various approaches to dividing assets and liabilities. All of these, we believe, both recognise Scotland's past and continuing contribution and are in the interests of all concerned. On the EU, we've identified how Scotland can continue its membership seamlessly on independence Again, an outcome benefiting Scotland, the rest of the UK and indeed other member states. It's not just common sense and our democratic tradition that will drive progress in negotiations. Both governments will want to help citizens and businesses across the UK navigate the path to a new constitutional future as easily as possible. Few people, I believe, would dispute that a cooperative approach to negotiations is the way to achieve this. Uh, we believe there are a number of common sense, practical principles that will inform and guide the negotiations. For example, a principle of continuity, services and reserved areas in Scotland and from Scotland to the rest of the UK, continuing unless and until it is agreed by the two governments that they should be varied or discontinued. A principle of openness and joint responsibility 
for an effective transition, an agreement that the two governments will work together for an effective transition, and a basic principle of fairness, particularly in the division of assets and liabilities. I believe that a combination of these kinds of principles and the reasonable proposals we have already made are in the interests of both Scotland and the rest of the UK and indeed our other friends and allies. I don't pretend for a second that there will not be some hard bargaining and that there will not be disagreement. There are difficult issues to resolve. But fundamentally, it is common sense and based on our shared democratic traditions that after a yes vote, it is in the interests of both Scotland and the rest of the UK to negotiate for two viable, friendly, functioning states and to do so in a timely manner. People across these islands, in all parts of these islands of ours, uh, know that the ties that matter between our nations, of family, of culture, of history, don't depend on Westminster. These ties will endure regardless of how we are governed. Uh, people also know that Scotland and the rest of the UK will be the closest of allies and friends after independence. Uh, we have only to listen to the words of the President of Independent Ireland during his recent state visit to the UK. Uh, when he was here, he spoke these words. Our nations share a unique proximity. We also share a common narrative woven through the manifold connections between our people and our heritage. I think those words demonstrate through the example of Independent Ireland that political independence and a strong, enduring social union go hand in hand. And that the relationship between an independent Scotland and the rest of the UK will be as close and constructive as befits this common history and geography. And that is the position that I firmly believe we will achieve following a yes vote and following negotiations with our colleagues at Westminster. So today I've set out three important elements of the constitutional future of an independent Scotland. Firstly, the practical utilitarian benefits to Scotland of changing our constitutional arrangements for our democracy, our economy, and for the fairness of our society. Second, the actual constitution of our independent Scotland, both the draft bill for an interim constitution, and secondly, the process and potential content and purpose of our permanent written constitution. And third, the negotiations and agreement we will reach with the rest of the UK and the European Union uh, and how these will form the basis of Scotland's international constitutional position of close friendship with our neighbours. Uh, each of these strands is an interesting and exciting topic in its own right. Uh, I think it's a great privilege for those of us involved in this debate to be able to consider them all at once as well as the uh, wide range of other issues that this debate has raised. It is, um, for me personally and uh, for others on this side of the debate, a great sadness that some such as Neil McCormick are not with us uh, today, uh, not just to add their wisdom, but also because we know they would have relished the opportunities that we now have. Uh, so it is for us who do have the good fortune to be part of this generation of Scots, to do justice to their memories and to our country by debating these subjects with the seriousness and the passion they deserve with respect for each other and with respect for the people of our country. I hope I've stimulated such a debate today and I now uh, very much look forward to your questions. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>